Life of the Author by John Aiken from the Miscellaneous Works of Tim Bobbin, Esquire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life of the Author. Hey, woo woo hoo, what woo for whack? He's left a moor to lieth dark. Vide his epitaph. Rochdale and its vicinity may be considered as the centre of the genuine Lancashire dialect, a variety of the English tongue, which, though uncouth to the ear and widely differing in words and grammar from cultivated language, is yet possessed of much force and expression. Its peculiar aptness for humorous narrative has been displayed in the noted dialect containing the adventures of a Lancashire clown, of which this district is the scene, written by Mr. Collier under the name of Tim Bobbin. The following memoirs of this person were communicated by Richard Townley, Esquire, to J. Aiken, M.D., and are inserted in his history of the environs of Manchester, which are here copied verbatim. Mr. John Collier, alias Tim Bobbin, was born near Warrington, in Lancashire. Footnote. Mr. Waldworth, master of the free school at Mottram, assures us that he was born at Harrison's Fold, near this village. He was intimately connected with him from his youth. End of footnote. His father, a clergyman of the established church, had a small curacy, and for several years taught a school. With the joint income of those, he managed so as to maintain a wife and several children decently, and also to give them a tolerable share of useful learning, until a dreadful calamity befell him about his fortieth year, the total loss of sight. His former intentions of bringing up his son John, of whose abilities he had conceived a favourable opinion, to the church, were then over, and he placed him out an apprentice to a Dutch loom-weaver, at which business he worked more than a year. But such a sedentary employment, not at all according with his volatile spirits and eccentric genius, he prevailed upon his master to release him from the remainder of his servitude. Though then very young, he soon commenced itinerant schoolmaster, going about the country from one small town to another, to teach reading, writing, and accounts, and generally having a night school, as well as a day one, for the sake of those whose necessary employments would not allow their attendance at the usual school hours. In one of his adjournments to the small but populous town of Oldham, he had intimation that Mr. Pearson, curate and schoolmaster at Milnrow near Rochdale, wanted an assistant in the school. To that gentleman he applied, and after a short examination, was taken in by him to the school, and he divided his salary, twenty pounds a year, with him. This Tim considered as a material advance in the world, as he still could have a night school, which answered very well in that very populous neighbourhood, and was considered by him, too, as a state of independency. A favourite idea ever afterwards with his high spirit. Mr. Pearson, not very long afterwards falling a martyr to the gout, my honoured father gave Mr. Collier the school, which not only made him happy in the thought of being more independent, but made him consider himself as a rich man. Having now more leisure hours by dropping his night school there, 
though he continued to teach at Oldham and some other places during the vacations of Whitsuntide and Christmas. He began to instruct himself in music and drawing, and soon was such a proficient in both as to be able to instruct others very well in those amusing arts. The oboe and common flute were his chief instruments, and upon the former he very much excelled. The fine modulations that have since been acquired or introduced upon that noble instrument being then unknown to all in England. He drew landscapes in good taste, understanding the rules of perspective, and attempted some heads in profile with very decent success. But it did not hit his humour, for I have heard him say, when urged to go on in that line, that drawing heads and faces was as dry and insipid as leading a life without frolic and fun, unless he was allowed to steal in some leers of comic humour or to give it a good dash of the caricature. Very early in life he discovered some poetic talents, or rather an easy habit for his humorous rhyme, by several anonymous squibs he sent about in ridicule of some notoriously absurd or very eccentric characters. These were fathered upon him very justly, which created him some enemies but more friends. I had once in my possession some humorous relations, intolerable rhyme of his own frolic and fun with persons he met with, of the like description, in his hours of festive humour, which was sure to take place when released for any time from school duty, and not too much engaged in his lucrative employ of painting. The first regular poetic composition which he published was styled The Blackbird, containing some spirited ridicule upon a Lancashire justice more renowned for political zeal and ill-timed loyalty than good sense or discretion. In point of easy regular versification, perhaps this was his best specimen, and it also exhibited some strokes of true humour. About this period of his life, he fell seriously in love with a handsome young woman, a daughter of Mr. Clay of Flockton, near Huddersfield, and soon afterwards took her unto him for a wife, or, as he used to style her, his crooked rib, who in proper time increased his family, and proved to be a virtuous, discreet, sensible, prudent woman, a good wife and an excellent mother. His family continuing to increase nearly every year, the oboe, flute, and amusing pencil were pretty much discarded, and the brush and palette taken up seriously. He was chiefly engaged for some time in painting altarpieces for chapels and signs for publicans, which pretty well rewarded the labours of his vacant hours from school attendance. But after some family expenses, increasing more with his growing family, he devised and luckily hit upon a more lucrative employment for his leisure time. This was copying Dame Nature in some of her humorous performances and grotesque sportings with the human race, especially where the visage had the greatest share in those sportings into which his pencil contrived to throw some pointed features of grotesque humour, such as were best adapted to excite risibility, as long as such strange objects had the advantage of novelty to recommend them. These pieces he worked off with uncommon celerity, a single portrait in the leisure hours of two days at least, and groups of three or four in a week. As soon as finished he was wont to carry or send them to the first-rate inns at Rochdale and Littleborough, in the great road to Yorkshire, with the lowest prices fixed upon them, the innkeepers willingly becoming Tim's agents. The droll humour, 
as well as singularity of style of those pieces, procured him a most ready sale from riders out and travellers of other descriptions who had heard of Tim's character. These whimsical productions soon began to be in such general repute that he had large orders for them, especially from merchants in Liverpool, who sent them upon speculation into the West Indies and America. He used at that time to say that if Providence had ever meant him to be a rich man, that would have been the proper time, especially if she had kindly bestowed upon him two pair of hands instead of one. But whenever cash came in readily, it was sure to go merrily. A cheerful glass with a joyous companion was so much in unison with his own disposition that a temptation of that kind could never be resisted by poor Tim. So the season to grow rich never arrived, but Tim remained poor Tim to the end of the chapter. Collier had been for many years collecting, not only from the rustics in his own neighbourhood, but also wherever he made excursions, all the awkward, vulgar, obsolete words and local expressions which ever occurred to him in conversation amongst the lower classes. A very retentive memory brought them safe back for insertion into his vocabulary or glossary, and from thence he formed and executed the plan of his Lancashire dialect which he exhibited to public cognizance in the adventures of a Lancashire clown, formed from some rustic sports and gambols, and also some whimsical modes of circulating fun at the expense of silly credulous boobies amongst the then cheery gentlemen of that peculiar neighbourhood. This publication from its novelty, together with some real strokes of comic humour interlarded into it, took very much with the middle and lower classes of the people in the northern counties, and, I believe, everywhere in the southern too, where it had the chance of being noticed, so that a new edition was soon necessary. This was a matter of exultation to Tim, but not of very long duration, for the rapid sale of that second edition soon brought forth two or three pirated editions, which made the honest unsuspecting owner exclaim with great vehemence, quote, that he did not believe there was one honest printer in Lancashire, and afterwards to lash some of the most culpable of those insidious offenders with his keen sarcastic pen when engaged in drawing up a preface to a future publication. The above-named performances with his pencil, his brush and his pen made Tim's name and repute for whimsical archness pretty generally known, not only within his native county, but also through the adjoining districts in Yorkshire and Cheshire, and his repute for a particular species of pleasantry in his hours of frolic often induced persons of much higher rank to send for him to an inn when in the neighbourhood of his residence to have a personal specimen of his uncommon drollery. Tim was seldom backwards in obeying a summons to good cheer, and seldom, I believe, disappointed the expectations of his generous host for he had a wonderful flow of spirits, with an inexhaustible fund of humour, and that too of a very peculiar cast. Blessed with a clear masculine understanding and a keen discernment into the humours and foibles of others, he knew how to make the best advantage of those occasional interviews, in order to promote trade, as he was wont to call it, though his natural temper was very far from being of a mercenary cast. It was often, rather, too free and generous, more so than prudence with respect to his family would advise, for he would sooner have had a Lenten day or two at home than done a shabby and mean thing abroad. 
amongst other persons of good fortune who often called upon him at milnrow or sent for him to spend a few hours with him at rochdale was a mr richard hill of kibroyd and halifax in yorkshire then one of the greatest cloth merchants and also one of the most considerable manufacturers of baizes and shalloons in the north of england this gentleman was not only fond of his humorous conversation but also had taken up an opinion that he would be highly useful to him as his head clerk in business from his being very ready at accounts and writing a most beautiful small hand in any kind of type but especially in imitation of printed characters footnote the lord's prayer in the size of a split pea of the garden kind the apostles creed in the size of a sixpence both most distinct End of footnote. after several fruitless attempts he at last by offers of an extravagant salary prevailed upon mr collier to enter into articles of service for three years certain and to take his family to kibroyd after signing and sealing he called upon me to give notice that he must resign the school and to thank me for my long-continued friendship to him at taking leave he like the honest moor albeit unused to the melting mood dropped tears as fast as the arabian trees their medicinal gum and in faltering accents entreated me not to be hasty in filling up the vacancy in that school where he had lived so many years contented and happy for he had already some forebodings that he should never relish his new situation and new occupation i granted his request but hoped he would soon reconcile himself to his new situation as it promised to be so advantageous both to himself and to his family he replied it was for the sake of his wife and children that he was at last induced to accept mr hill's very tempting offers no other consideration whatever could have made him give up milnrow school and independency about two months afterwards some business of his master's bringing him to rochdale market he took that opportunity of returning by belfield i instantly perceived a wonderful change in his looks that countenance that used ever to be gay serene or smiling was then covered and disguised with a pensive settled gloom on asking him how he liked his new situation at kibroyd he replied not at all then enumerating several causes for discontent concluded with an observation that he never could abide the ways of that country for they neither kept red letter days themselves nor allowed their servants to keep any before he left me he passionately entreated that i would not give away the school for he should never be happy again till he was seated in the crazy old elbow chair within his old school i granted his request being less anxious to fill up the vacancy as there were two other free schools for the same uses within the same townships which have decent salaries annexed to them some weeks afterwards i received a letter from tim that he had some hopes of getting released from his vassalage for that the father having found out what very high wages his son had agreed to give him was exceedingly angry with him for being so extravagant in his allowance to a clerk that a violent quarrel betwixt them had been the consequence and from that circumstance he meant at least hoped to derive some advantage in the way of regaining his liberty which he lingered after and panted for as much as any galley-slave upon earth footnote 
the father and son were not in partnership but carried on distinct branches of the woollen trade End footnote. another letter announced that his master perceiving that he was dejected and had lost his wonted spirits and cheerfulness had hinted to him that if he disliked his present situation he should be released from his articles at the end of the year concluding his letter with a most earnest imploring that i would not dispose of the school before that time by the interposition of the old gentleman and some others he got the agreement cancelled a considerable time before the year expired and the evening of the day when the liberation took place he hired a large yorkshire cart to bring away bag and baggage by six the next morning to his own house at milnrow footnote his father-in-law built a very decent house for him and his daughter upon a small plot of ground near the school on a nine hundred and ninety-nine years lease at the small cheel of a shilling per annum when he arrived upon the west side of blackstone edge he thought himself once more a free man and his heart was as light as a feather the next morning he came up to belfield to know if he might take possession of his school again which being readily consented to tears of gratitude instantly streamed down his cheeks and such a suffusion of joy illumined his countenance as plainly bespoke the heart being in unison with his looks he then declared his unalterable resolution never more to quit the humble village of milnrow that it was not in the power of emperors kings or their prime ministers to make him any offers if so disposed that would allure him from his tottering elbow-chair from humble fare with liberty and contentment a hint was thrown out that he must work hard with his pencil his brush and his pen to make up the deficiency in income to his family that he promised to do and was as good as his promise for he used double diligence so that the inns at rochdale and littleborough were soon ornamented more than ever with ugly grinning old fellows and mumbling old women on broomsticks etc etc tim's last literary productions as i recollect were remarks upon the reverend mr whitaker's history of manchester in two parts the remarks will speak for themselves there appeared rather too much seasoning and salt in some of them mixed with a degree of acerbity for which he was rather blamed mr collier died in possession of his mental powers but little impaired at near eighty years of age and his eyes not so much injured as might have been expected from such a severe use of them during so long a space of time his wife died a few year before him but he left three sons and two daughters behind him the sons were all attached to the palatum brush but in different branches of the mimetic art end of life of the author by john aiken from the miscellaneous works of tim bobbin esquire